But we're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading with verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. We've made our way now through this first uh, chapter uh, in this letter to the Ephesians, and Paul has done a really fantastic job of, of opening up who we are in Christ if we belong to Him. If we are Christians, if we've been born again, what we have and who we are in Christ. He preached to us about spiritual blessings in Christ and how that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and that He sent Christ to redeem us and save us from our sins so that we could be forgiven. And how that He's given us the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, not just of God's love for us and His work in our life right now, but He is the guarantee of our inheritance that is to come, and all that He's promised to give. And then He concluded that chapter last week with a prayer, a prayer that we would have eyes to see these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, that we would be able to see and to know what is the hope of His calling, that we might know His inheritance in the saints, that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. And that power is the power that worked in Christ in raising Him from the dead. It's the power that was at work in His ascension back to the Father and Him being seated on the throne and reigning over His creation and over His church even now. That's the power that's at work in us. And so in chapter 2, he continues this teaching, the, 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 these Christians and to us, who we are in Christ. But at this point, he sort of taps the brakes for a second, not talking about only who we are, but using who we were to contrast and to help us understand. I don't know about, about you all, but there are times when people remember things that I did or that I was in the past that I really, really, really wish they would forget. And even if they did remember it, that they would never, ever, ever bring it up again. And so Paul here, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't really care what you feel like in the moment. He's going to be very honest about who we were before we knew Christ. He's going to be very clear about what unbelievers are, who you are right now if you're not a Christian. Being, as he says, dead in trespasses and sins. So who were we before we knew Christ? Well, the first thing he says there is that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Now, you think about someone who is dead. That's a 
pretty helpless state. Wouldn't you agree? I have a friend uh, who was running on the Greenway in the city he lives in just a few months ago and didn't think anything in the world was wrong with him. And he suddenly had a heart attack there on the Greenway and went down. And you just call this the providence of God. We won't even say luck. Uh, There were three people around whenever he hit the ground. One was a retired army medic. Okay, that's good. (laughs) One was a a, a lady who had just retired from being a nurse. uh, And the other had just finished a CPR class the day before at her job. Okay, so if you got to go down, right, and there's going to be three people nearby, I feel like he was in pretty good company. Now, it's a good thing they were there because when he hit the ground having a heart attack, you know what he was able to do for himself? Absolutely nothing. He couldn't get a phone call. He couldn't cry out for help. He just hit the ground and somebody else came and had to help, had to intervene from the outside. Now, thankfully, because those people were there, he's alive and he's doing okay right now. Praise God for it. But he was in a helpless state with a heart attack. And there were, but there were people who could help him. But if you got in your car and you headed down towards downtown Pilot Mountain and you decided to pull in at Cox Needham at the funeral home, there are some people there who can't do anything for themselves because they're lying in a box. But what separates their condition from the condition of my friend is not only they can't help themselves, but there's absolutely nobody else in the world who can help them either. There's no preacher that can do anything to help a dead person. There's no doctor who can do anything to help a person who is dead. I mean dead, dead. I'm not talking about like 15 seconds ago and they shock you and bring you back. I mean dead. Like dead, stinking in the grave, dead. There's nothing anybody can do to help a dead person. And that's the language that Paul uses when he describes our state before we knew Christ. He says you were dead in trespasses and sins. Totally helpless, hopeless, nothing anybody in this world can do for you. Now, he says dead in trespasses and sins. That in is sort of the the nature of our state. That's what he means by dead. Obviously, people who don't believe in Jesus are alive right now. They're walking around, they're breathing, they're going about their daily lives. But in this sense that they are dead, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. This is our natural state. You know, a a dog isn't a dog because it barks. A dog barks because it's a dog, right? It's its nature. Sinners aren't sinners because they sin. Did you know that? It's not that you come into this world and you're good and and you're neutral and you sort of have a chance there of whether you're going to be good or whether you're going to sin. And then once you sin that first time, then you're a sinner. No, we sin because we are by nature sinners. We've inherited the nature of our father Adam who rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, ate the fruit, and we've all been plunged into sin. It's our natural state. We are dead in trespasses and sins. What does that look like? He says that we walked in step with the world. Verse 2 there, he says, "...in which you once walked according to the course of this world." So a person who doesn't know Christ, a person who is dead in their sins, and you, before you were a Christian, you walked according to the course of this world. That is, the things that are the goals of people in the world, the goals of the world were your goals. Make a lot of money, live happy, try to stay healthy, have a good life, enjoy yourself. Those are the goals of the world, right? The priorities of the world were your priorities. 
Things that the world sees as important are the things that you saw as most important. The things that the world said were acceptable and okay are the things that you saw as acceptable and okay. But it turns out that when we walk in step with the world, we walk according to the course of the world. It's not merely uh, the course of the world, but it's actually walking in step with the devil. That's a fun guy to talk about. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, comma, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's just a, another way of saying the devil, Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So walking in step with the world is ultimately walking in step with Satan, walking in step with the devil. He's at work behind the evil that we see in the world. And, and sometimes, I mean, it's, it gets discouraging, it's depressing to watch the news. That's why I don't. Some of y'all could stand with, some, with less or not at all because you get depressed and you get all worked up about things. You say, I don't see how anybody could, could live that way or do those things or how uh, such a, a large group of people could think that something is right when it's so obviously wrong. It's because it's not all natural. There is something that's going on that we can't see. There are things behind the curtain that is Satan is at work. And those who walk according to the course of this world, those who live in the, the ways of the flesh and live the way that the world instructs us to live, are not just living after the course of the world, but we're actually following after the devil. He's at work behind evil in the world, and those who walk in disobedience to God are considered sons of disobedience. Now, you remember Jesus, you know, he and the Pharisees, they had a great relationship. I mean... They fought as much as my kids do. Uh, the, you know, they were always at each other's throats, seemed like. They were after him anyway. And Jesus is talking about God being his father, and they really get offended by that. And they're like, oh, yeah, we heard about the whole you know, virgin birth thing. Mary was pregnant before she got married to Joseph. We know, we know. At least we know who our father is. You know, we're sons of Abraham. Abraham's our father. That's where, they're, that's where they were proud. That's what they wanted everybody to know. They're sons of Abraham. We've got a pure lineage. Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, you'd believe in me. But you're not sons of Abraham, and your father isn't God in heaven. He said, but you are of your father, the devil. Those who walk according to the course of this world, those who walk in disobedience to God, whether you realize it or not, you're walking in the ways of your father, the devil. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're walking in step with the world. We were living for our own lusts. He says there in verse 3, he says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, whenever a person is not a, has not been born again, they've not been given that new nature, the only thing you know to do is what comes natural to you, to follow after the lusts of your own flesh, the desires of your own flesh and of the mind. And that's who we are before we know Christ. Yeah, there are restraints that are put on us by parents or when we're in school or, you know, job. There's certain things we know we can't do, but on the whole, we pretty much live just to satisfy our own desires. 
And we're reading 1 Corinthians right now, some of you in your discipleship groups. That's where you are in your plan. And, and what are the two big things that Paul keeps coming back to when he talks about sins and the desires of the flesh? Sex and food, <laughs> you know? And one, everybody goes, yeah, you should keep that within the bounds of marriage. And church people are good at pointing that finger, you know, those... LG and B and T and alphabet soup and all that out there. I mean, that, I know how you talk. I hear you. Right, it's good to point. It's easy to point the finger and to say, yeah, all those people who are sexually perverted and, and going against what God has designed, that's wrong. And it is. It's sin. That's the course of the world. It's after the, their father, the devil. They just don't realize it. But the people who grow up in church, you know, they don't always go out and do the big obvious things. We still follow after the lusts of our flesh and of, of the mind, just in different ways. You know, it's whatever you do in private when nobody is around. You still live after the lusts of the flesh. And even if it's not in the realm of, of the sexual, you, again, Paul talks about two big things, right? Sex and food. Oh man, we Baptists, we could get off on that one. Y'all smell it already. There's, there's food downstairs right now. There is. I hope you'll stay and eat with us today, but you're going to be watching how much you put on your plate after this. I, I grew up, and I don't mean to pick on people. I remember growing up that sometimes you'd hear a preacher that'd get up there, and they, you know some of the preachers I grew up around, they'd preach against everything that moved. You know, They didn't care what it was. Um, I heard people preach against wire rim glasses and you know going to the movies and going to restaurants to sell alcohol and all kinds of stuff. And I remember one particular occasion, this guy just going on and on and on about cigarettes. I mean, they're disgusting. I'm sorry, but you know he was just that was his sermon, right? He was just going on about and it, you know you're destroying the temple of God, which is your body, putting that stuff in there. And you look at this guy, and I don't know how many times a week he goes to the buffet, but he was not concerned about the temple, which was his body. Now we're laughing because we're thinking about other people. But I hope that right now the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind the ways that we tend to satisfy the lusts of our flesh. Whatever that is. Because that's what people outside of Christ do. That's what we did before we knew Christ. We satisfy the desires of the flesh. But he doesn't just say the desires of the flesh. He says the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, you may not be the kind of person that anybody can look at your life and point out any particular thing they see you doing that's just utterly sinful. As far as everybody's concerned, on the outside, you look clean. As far as fulfilling the desires of the flesh, you look like you're exercising self-control. But what is going on in your mind? In what ways are you trying to manipulate the circumstances around you so that you can be in control? What are the things that stress you out? What are the things that you get angry about or fearful that you're going to lose? Those are the things that have become your idols. People who were outside of Christ before we knew Christ. That's how we lived then. We fulfilled the desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's how lost people live. That's how unbelievers live. That's who you were. It's not who you are in Christ. So we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're walking in step with the world. We're living for our own lusts. And then he says, we are children of wrath. There at the end of verse 3, he says, and we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. You see, being dead in sins results in eternal death in hell. 
It's not a popular subject, but it's the reality. God is holy, He is just, He is good. And because He is just, and because He is good, He must punish sin. And He will. And those who live after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the mind, and step with the world after their father the devil, dead in trespasses and sins, your end, my friend, if that's you, your end is destruction. You will stand before God on judgment day and give an account for your life, how you lived it all for yourself and your own desires. And the outcome will be hell. He says that we are by nature children of wrath. And that's our default position. John 3, everybody knows verse 16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he goes on and says that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 18, He that believes on Him, that is to the point of salvation, He that believes on Him is not condemned. Praise God, that's good news. But he that does not believe is condemned, and what's the word he uses next? Already. He is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Your default position coming into the world with your sinful nature, you are by nature condemned. You are a child of wrath. You stand under the judgment of God and you just rack up sins every day of your life for the day of judgment. That's the state of those who do not know Christ. That was who we are. Christians, you listen. That's who you are. That's who you were before you knew Christ. And he says, just as the others. This is everyone's problem. There's no one who is exempt in the world. This applies to you who are now in Christ. This is who you were. It applies to you who are still dead in your sins, who have not been born again. This is who you are. Christians, this applies to the unbelievers you know. Think of the people that you know who are not Christians, who have not put their trust in Jesus. This is their condition. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are by nature children of wrath. Now, what does that make you feel? Hopefully, it moves you to compassion, the desire to do something. But listen, if they're dead, what can you do? You, in yourself, cannot do anything. And don't be surprised when sinners act like sinners. It just it amazes me all the time. Christians see people who don't even profess faith in Christ just do things that we just can't imagine. Thinking, how can they do that? They're sinners. Sinners sin. Imagine that. But there is no human help for them except to point them to supernatural help. Because they're dead in their sins. So if that's who you were in the past, what changed? Who are you now? And what is the hope of those who are dead in their sins in the present? What's the alternative? Friends, if you've been born again, you know... If you've experienced this, you know the answer because there's this, these two little words that make all the difference in verse 4. What are the first two words there? 
You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking after the course of the world. You're following after your father, the devil. You're following after the lusts of your flesh and of the mind. You're by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. That's who you are if you are in Christ. You have been made alive. We've been made alive with Christ, friends. Now, I think about people who who were made alive by Christ in his ministry. You remember Jairus came to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I've got this little girl, my only daughter. She's at the point of death. Will you come and heal her? And so Jesus goes and he's going with Jairus on his way to his house. And then he gets interrupted on the way by this other woman who, who, who's sick and needs to be healed. And so Jesus is dealing with her. And I can just imagine Jairus thinking, Jesus, she's, she's at her end. Come on. And so that woman goes on her way, and, and they start off again, and some, some people come and say, hey, don't bother Jesus anymore, she's dead. At that moment, Jairus has this opportunity just to lose all hope. It's over, thanks for trying Jesus, but I guess we're not going to make it. And Jesus sort of stops him before he ever has a chance to say anything, and he says, wait, only believe. So they continue on to the house. They get there. There's people all gathered around weeping. Jesus just kicks them all out of the room. Get out of here. He says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they mock him. They knew, they, says that they, they knew that she was dead. They were sure. They were confident of it. Because she was. Nothing they could do about it. But then Jesus goes over to this girl. And he puts his hand on her. And he says, little girl, arise. She opened her eyes, got up, and he said, get her something to eat. She was made alive by Christ. I don't know, on another occasion, Jesus is passing through, and he sees this funeral procession through the city gates. And there's a, a widow, and she, her only son has died, and she's weeping. And Jesus walks up just because he's, he's moved with compassion. Nobody's asked him to do anything. And he walks up and puts his hand on the coffin, and the guy gets up and gets out of the coffin. And he presents him back to his mother. My favorite is John 11 with Lazarus, because we've talked about this a lot, you know. His sisters, Mary Martha, sent word to Jesus, say, our brother is sick, he's going to die, come heal him, and Jesus doesn't go right away. He waits around a couple of days. Lazarus dies. He gets there, and they say, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Mary meets, or Martha meets him, and then Mary meets him, and they both say the same thing. If, if you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And then he asked this really, really, really important question. He said, do you believe this? And what did she say? Yes, Lord. I believe that you're the son of God who's come into the world. Jesus goes out to where they had buried him. They'd rolled a, a, a stone in front of the, the opening of the tomb, and he says, hey, move it. And they said, listen, he's been there for four days. He's starting to stink. You don't want to open that. But they did it anyway. They obeyed, and Jesus, standing in this 
garden, the cemetery, and he cries out with a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the scripture tells us that the one who had been dead came out of his tomb. He was alive. And all of those things are perfect, beautiful pictures of what Jesus does for sinners, even now, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, who have gone our own way, who are under the judgment of God. He comes to us when we're dead in our sins, and He raises us. He makes us alive. Jesus raises sinners to life in Him. But He doesn't just say that we have been made alive by Christ. He says we have been made alive with Christ. Because Jesus, this one who had healed the sick and who had raised the dead in his own ministry and throughout his time of of working there among Israel, he himself died. You see, this perfect, sinless Son of God who came and lived sinlessly among us the way that we never could, not deserving to die, laid down his life on the cross. He had the nails driven into his hands and to his feet, the crown of thorns in his brow. He was mocked and hoisted up before a crowd naked until he suffered and breathed his last breath. He died bearing the sins of those who were killing him. He bore your sins and my sins, those of us who were dead in trespasses and sins. He took all our sins on himself and paid for it in his death. And he was buried. And he had said before his death, I'm going to be delivered to Jerusalem, into the hands of the Pharisees, and killed. And he made them this promise, on the third day, I will rise again. They seem to have forgotten that at first. Because they go away and they hide. The disciples are just discouraged and don't know what to do. But on that third day, when the sun arose and the women went to the tomb, they found that the stone had been rolled away and that it was empty. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he saves sinners, when he comes to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, walking after the world in their own lusts, who are under the judgment and wrath of God, and He makes them alive. He makes them alive, not something just outside of Himself, but He makes them alive in the power of the same, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, the same power that Jesus rose Himself from the dead with. He saves sinners. You are made alive, not just by Christ, but you are made alive with Christ. It's in His death, in His resurrection, that you have life. We've been made alive with Him in His own resurrection from the dead. And it's an act of His rich mercy, His great love. It's what it says in verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy. Oh, there is no shortage of supply. He is wealthy when it comes to mercy. He has great love. There is no greater love than this, Jesus says, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In His rich mercy and His great love, even when we were dead in trespasses. When we had nothing to offer, nothing good we could ever do to try to earn His favor or work our way back to Him. When we were dead, helpless, hopeless, and useless, He died for us and made us alive in Christ. We've been seated in heaven with Christ. He says there in verse 
6, and he says, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, after Jesus' resurrection, he was exalted. He was given his rightful position of glory and honor and power on his throne in heaven. And where he's seated now, at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. But Paul says here that when we were made alive together with him, he raised us up and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Any of y'all ever sat in the heavenly places? There's a couple of guys that wrote a book about it. I don't know if I buy it. It doesn't seem like it makes much sense to the natural man. But what this is, is our position in Christ. We have been raised to new life in him. And positionally, we are seated with him because we are in Christ. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. We are in Christ. Everything that he is in God, now we are in him. We have these spiritual blessings and we share in his glory and honor and power and are exalted, not because of anything that we've done, but because we are in him who has raised us from the dead. We've been seated in heaven in Christ. And then finally, we are eternal recipients of his grace because he says there in verse 7 that, this is sort of the, the purpose, the, the conclusion, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I know he uses a lot of prepositional phrases, y'all, but if you slow down and read it, it makes good sense. That in the ages to come, which ones? All of them, for all eternity, all the ages that are coming. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. God does all of this to put his grace on display. We are, in a sense, trophies of grace. Do you know there's some trophies in this church? How many of you have never seen them and you don't know what I'm talking about? Okay, so there's a few. Most of you have at least seen them. How many have seen them in the last 12 months? Okay, so two people have seen them in the last 12 months. Most of them are from the 1970s and 80s and got the little guy on top with the softball bat, right? They're in the library. You should take a look at them. I wipe the dust while you're at it. Those are trophies. They're really important to people who were, in, who were involved at the time or know people who were. They have a little value. It's a memory. But that's not the kind of trophies that God is interested in when it comes to putting his grace on display. Not something that's put in the library and collects dust. But friends, you, having received the riches of His grace, are put on display for all of eternity, front and center, so that all creation may know that God is a God of grace. He's going to show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness to you did not stop when Jesus died on the cross. God's kindness to you did not stop the moment that you believed. God will be eternally kind to His children because for all eternity, He wants to display His grace in you. He will give you grace for everything you need. Every step along the way as His child, He will be with you. He will give you all that you, all that you need so that you can display His glory and His grace. He's done that in Jesus. This is only experienced in Christ. In Christ Jesus. So then the question becomes, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you been made alive? Or 
Are you still dead in your sins? Are you still following after the course of the world, living for the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind? Because if that's who you are, you are by nature a child of wrath, just like everybody else. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, came so that he could make us alive in Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you new life in him. If you will repent and put your trust in him. And if you have been born again and you live in this new life, friends, is, 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 does this reflect? Do you see this change? Is there a shift in the way you live? And are you rejoicing in his grace? Because that's why he saved you. Would you stand as we pray? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I praise you, O God, that you took us, that you took me, one who was dead in my sins, living for my own lusts, my own desires, maybe in a churchified kind of way, in a religious setting, but still a sinner, a child of wrath, and you made me alive. I praise you for the people in this room whom you have made alive. I pray that our lives would look at look like it. And Lord, I pray for those who are still dead in their sins. There has been no change. There has been no transfer from darkness to light, from death to life. Save them today. In Jesus' name. Amen.